This is the Champlain Society podcast, Witness to Yesterday. My name is Greg Marshaldon, and I'm talking from the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. It is my great pleasure to interview historian and lawyer Ian Kyer. He joins me at the studio to talk about the history of the legal profession in Canada from the vantage point of the Bay Street law firm Faskins. His book, Lawyers, Families, and Business, was published by Irwin Law on behalf of the Osgood Society for Canadian Legal History in 2013. Ian, welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Thank you. Now, you've got a fascinating background in that you were both a historian and lawyer. Tell us about your personal history in both of these worlds. Okay, well, I never intended to be a lawyer. My career goal was always to be a medieval historian teaching at the university level. But as I approached the end of my PhD program, there simply weren't any jobs available. And so with some encouragement from my wife and family, I ended up going into law. I loved law, actually. It turned out well for me. I did well. I became a partner in a Bay Street law firm and uh, one of the leaders in the information technology legal practice in Canada. So it worked out well in that sense. But I never abandoned my historical pursuits. When I went to law school, it was obviously reluctantly. I still had a strong interest in history. And so my way of linking my interest in history and my career in law was to write about legal history. And I began right at law school when I began to write the history of legal education in Ontario, which was published in 1987 by the University of Toronto Press and the Osgood Society as The Fiercest Debate. It was co-authored with Jerry Bickenbach, who was another would-be academic with a PhD in philosophy of law. And so we did that, and I say to people, it was my therapy, how I felt good about practicing law. Now, why did you decide to write a history of Faskins in the first place? Because in my experience, it's really difficult to reconstruct the history of law firms because of the challenges involved in getting any written record. The confidentiality of the clients is foremost in the minds of the lawyers in these law firms, and rarely are you able to get any documentation. So what were your sources? Well, let's start with how did I end up writing it. So interestingly, it began, it wasn't something I planned. I was a first-year lawyer. I was called into the office of a senior partner in the firm, Ron Rolls, a litigator. He had uh, been presented recently with papers that had been given to the Irish Law Society by the Baker family, a series of letters from the early 20th century that described the founding of a Toronto law firm. Now, they were written on the letterhead of B.D. Blackstock, a name that didn't bring any current law firms to mind. But in those days, they listed the partners on the letterhead, and one of the names that was listed was David Faskin. And so Ron thought that perhaps these letters were about the founding of the Faskins law firm. So he knew I had a historical background. He called me in and said, Ian, I want you in your spare time to go off and find out whether or not these letters were about the founding of Faskins. It turned out they were. So I ended up writing a brief article about this called New Light on an Old Firm, which was published in the Law Society Gazette in 1984. But it caught my interest because in the course of doing this, I discovered that, in fact, the law firm had a very long history. It had been founded in February 1863. And its story was very much the story of early Toronto in part because it became the Goodwin Wartz family firm. Now, in terms of records, as a partner, I had access to all of the firm's records, and they had collected, they had maintained many of the old records. We had financial records right back to the founding of the firm. 
and they had been microfilmed a few years before to save space. So those were available to me. The only issue was, you know, to what extent could I tell the story and not breach solicitor-client privilege? But the good news is that because the firm was so old, the early years were all, the clients were either, the individuals were obviously dead, and the corporations, many of them simply didn't exist anymore. And so solicitor-client privilege didn't prove to be a barrier in the early going. And so I got involved, not with the intention of writing a formal history at the time, but I just began the research and 30 years later produced the book. Well, tell us a little bit about your long affiliation with Faskins. As historians, we always emphasize the importance of being somewhat detached from the subject of your history. You clearly weren't. You were a lawyer right in the law firm. Did uh, your connection to Faskins make it harder for you to write an objective history of the firm? Well, it was clearly a concern that I shared. I began as a student at the firm in 1980, became a lawyer in 82, partner in 1988, and I was with the firm for 33 years. So clearly I had a very strong involvement with the firm. But I'd read a number of other firm histories, and I had seen where lawyers who had been writing about it became effectively cheerleaders for the firm, pointing out how important the firm was and how good it was in all these different areas. So I knew that that was something I had to avoid. I'd had my legal training, so I knew that that was something, objectivity was what I was seeking. But as it turned out, as I was going through it, it didn't turn out to be as big an issue as I thought it might be, in part because the firm was so old. It was 150 years old by the time the book came out. And so I was writing about things that had no immediate bearing on the work that I was doing or the people I was working with. So I think I was able to maintain objectivity in that sense. Now, obviously, as I got closer, that was going to be an issue. So I decided, in fact, to focus the book on the first 100 years of the firm. I talk about the next 50 from 1963 until 2013 when the book came out, but I ceased to do it in the detail that I did in the early ones. And I talk more about trends in legal profession generally and how what was going on in the firm reflected those trends or, in some cases, cases led some of those trends. So I tried to main objectivity in that sense. So you focused less on the people and more on sort of the macro trends. In the last chapter. That's right. Very different than the first part. The first is very much, in fact, the first couple of chapters, people say to me, reads much more like a social history than a legal history because the law firm and the people were so intimately entwined that there was no, no real separation between them. So what does your history of Faskins tell us about the history of the legal profession more generally in Canada? Well, one of the things that I feel is of value that the book brings is it is the first time that major Canadian law firm has been looked at, I like to think objectively, and in detail from beginning until the modern day. And so it gives us a good example of how the law evolved both the practice of the law and the law itself. So the first two partners, William Henry Beattie and Edward Marion Chadwick, began practice, very small firm, single room. It was a solicitor's practice. Beattie wasn't even called to the bar. He was only a solicitor. And they focused on insolvency law. But Beattie had the good fortune of marrying the daughter of James Goodrum Wartz. And that made the link with the Goodrum and Wartz families. And that provided the business for the firm. In fact, I say in the book that that marriage was probably the most significant event in the first 50 years of the firm. Because it brought with the marriage the link to the families. And the families were believers in keeping the work, all the work that was done, both the business, the accounting, the legal, all of these things within the family. And so the legal work went to the Beattie firm. And so as a result, they began to work for the Bank of Toronto for Canada Permanent Mortgage, eventually for Manulife, for railroads like the Toronto Railroad, a narrow-gauge railroad that the Goodrum and Wartz controlled. 
So they began to expand their practice because they were getting all of this different work. Zebulon Lash was the first person they hired outside of the two original partners, who became one of Canada's leading corporate lawyers, not with B.D. Blackstock, with Blake's later on, but anyway. And then the family began to get into mining, and the firm expanded into mining, became in fact one of the Canada's leading mining firms. Mining and manufacturing in the late 1900s led to labor issues. One of the fascinating chapters in the book is about how William Lyon Mackenzie King, who was himself a client of the firm as the deputy minister of labor in the 1890s, ended up becoming personally involved in settling a labor dispute in the mining industry on behalf of his law firm. I thought it was quite interesting. Anyway, so they got into labor law. Then obviously the 20th century brought securities regulation and competition law and things like this. And so what you can see in the book is the development of the law and how the practice of the law changed to meet these changing legal requirements and business requirements. Now, Faskins is a Bay Street law firm. Can you describe the characteristics that set a Bay Street law firm from other firms in Canada? What is different about a a Bay Street firm? Well, Bay Street is interesting. Very few of these firms are actually located on Bay Street, but Bay Street is meant to be sort of emblematic of the business community in Canada. And these are firms that are focused on providing the legal needs for the largest corporate businesses operating in Canada. They focus on corporate and commercial law in its broadest sense. That's mergers, acquisitions, competition law, securities laws, and so on. So it's very much business-focused and very much focused on representing the largest operators in Canadian business. Now, I've done some study in the past on the evolution of the corporate law firm in Canada, and what I note is that it hasn't been the same across the country. There are regional variations. Can you describe this in terms of the knowledge that you've gained in all of your legal history writing? Sure. Well, there clearly are regional differences. The book only brings this out indirectly because it focuses very much on downtown Toronto in a sense. But in the course of doing this, obviously, the firm interacted with other firms in other jurisdictions, especially out west in Winnipeg, Alberta, and British Columbia. And you begin to see the different ways that, number one, Toronto and Montreal were the business centers of the time. And so the truly corporate firms developed in those cities. And the other firms developed often to work with those corporate firms from Toronto. And so you'll see Stuart and McKelvey and Bennett Jones and various firms interacting with the Faskins firm, because they're representing the same clients in the different jurisdictions. They have a different focus, in a sense, but they all have, you know, that corporate focus. Well, I shouldn't say all. Some of the more regional firms don't have enough large corporate work to make it their principal area, but certainly the big firms all have this idea of the specialty of representing corporations. Now, one of the things that struck me as interesting about Faskins is that it was always business-focused, but in the beginning, clients were individuals who were operating as sole proprietors or, in the case of Goodrum and Warts and some others, as partnerships. And the law is very different between corporate and these other areas in its base element. 1982 is, 1882, excuse me, is the year that I say that effectively Faskins became a truly corporate-focused firm, because that's when Gooder and Warts incorporated their largest client. And from that point onwards, all of their large clients were corporations. So you can see the way the focus changes. They're now, when you're looking through the sort of work they're doing, they're preparing for shareholders' meetings. They are doing public offerings. 
They are dealing with corporate filings that are now required eventually for the Securities Commission, originally, you know, for the Minister of Finance and so on. The nature of the work that they are doing for those corporations changes. Right. So you've begun to describe the array of services that are provided by corporate law firms to the business clients. Have these services changed over historical time? Yes, yes. As I was just alluding to, I think they have. The goal of the firm has always been to serve all of the needs of your large clients. But what has changed are the needs of those clients. Now, Beatty and Chadwick, they focused on business law, but they also offered wills, estates, real estate, because the people who controlled the Kuderman Wartz businesses and the other businesses that they were serving had those needs, and they didn't want to send them somewhere else. Interestingly, they did not offer litigation in the beginning. For the first 30 years of the firm, they sent litigation out. But when George Goodrum got involved in major litigation in the 1890s, they didn't want their major client going somewhere else, so they brought in litigators. But what's changed is that the way we regulate corporations... I mean, corporations are creatures of statute, right? So they're created by a statute. They have to comply with the statute, make various filings, do various things in accordance with the statute. And the number of statutes that apply to corporations have changed enormously over time. Labor law was one of the early things that came along. So the firm had to deal with things like this. Administrative law became a big thing in the early part of the 20th century, the creation of the Securities Commission and so on. And then gradually over time, other things arose. Suddenly now intellectual property is one of the most valuable forms of property that businesses have. We obviously, you know, the firm needed to develop expertise in that area. It's one of the things I got involved with. Information technology, of course, was unknown for much of the 150 years, but it's become extremely important now. Environmental law. So it has definitely changed as we increasingly regulate the way corporations interact, how they're created, how they raise money, and so on. The firm adapts to these. Interestingly, they still continue to offer wills, estates, real estate, because the individuals behind all these those services. In my own research in business history, I found that actually there was a strong connection between Canada's earliest corporate lawyers and their business clients. In fact, I found it difficult to see any clear separation between law and business at times. The lawyers were just so involved in their clients' businesses. Was this the case in the early years of Faskins? And did this sort of relationship, if it did exist, this close, tight relationship, did it change over time? Well, the answer to those is definitely, absolutely yes in both instances. So in the beginning, when you look at the lawyers, one of the things that that struck me looking at it from today, where today, you know, getting involved with your clients, you know, lending money to clients, having them lend you money, being involved in their businesses, all of these things create issues for the modern lawyer. Filings you've got to make with the law society. You have to be sure you don't get involved in conflicts of interest and this sort of thing. Conflict of interest was an unknown concept in the early part of the law firm. They were so conflicted, it was incredible because these were their uncles, aunts, fathers-in-law and so on that they were advising because it was very much the Goodman Wartz family firm and so there were family connections everywhere and you were advising both sides of transactions and so on and you know when they needed a president for a company that was created the lawyers would become so William Henry Beattie became the president of Bank of Toronto a Goodman controlled bank and president of Confederation Life and, you know, a number of these other lawyers in the firm. Ross Goodrum, who was the son of George Goodrum, the leading client of the firm, was both a lawyer in the firm and president of Manulife. So they were intimately involved 
both on a family level and a business level and a legal level, which is what inspired the title of the book, Lawyers, Families, and Businesses. But that definitely has changed over time. There's a wonderful quote that William Renwick Riddle gave. He was a lawyer in the firm, left the firm over a falling out with David Faskin. He went off, gave a talk at the nascent Canadian Bar Association about the changes in law and how law used to be an intimate relationship between lawyer and client. You know, you were the family lawyer and now this, you know, lawyers have become these people who are more divorced. And he thought this is a bad thing. <laughs> but we now today, I think, say, no, in fact, that's the sort of independence you want your lawyers to bring. So tell us a little bit about the history of the firm at the uh, turn of the century. Who were the Faskin brothers in particular, and how did they come to take the control of the firm away from the partnership that was originally known as B.D. Blackstock? This, to my mind, is one of the most fascinating aspects of this story. In the 1890s, the firm was known as B.D. Blackstock. William Henry Beattie, the founders of the firm, son-in-law of James Goodrum Mortz. Thomas Gibbs Blackstock was the son-in-law of George Goodrum. It was very much the family firm. And the thought was always that when B.D. retired, Blackstock would take over. But everything changed in the first decade of the 20th century because George Goodrum, the most important client, died in 1905. And shortly thereafter, Thomas Gibbs Blackstock died. William Henry Beatty at this point, in fact, had to leave the firm effectively. He remained in title, but he wasn't practicing at all because somebody had to take over operations of all of these family firms. So he's president of Bank of Toronto and so on. So now the question is, who is going to run the firm? And interestingly, the person who steps in to run the firm is David Faskin. Now, David Faskin is very much an aberration in the early days. He's not related to the Goodrums or the Warts at all. He's not from a prominent Toronto family. He's not from Toronto at all. His father is a farmer in Alora, not a prosperous family. I mean, they're not doing badly, but they certainly don't have the wealth or influence or position that the Goodrums and the Warts have had. But David is just a very hard worker, and he becomes William Henry Beatty's right-hand man. And he's the one that when Beatty is tied up with things as a de facto matter, not he has no authority in the firm as such, but, but as a de facto matter, he's the one who's making many of the decisions. So when Beatty Blackstock are gone, he's the one who steps in. Now, he is from out of Toronto. He's a self-made man. He has none of the family connections and none of the wealth of many of the other people in the firm. He brings a very different view, I think a modern view, of the role of the lawyer. He, for the first time, introduces a written partnership agreement in which he prohibits people from working outside the firm without permission of the partners. And as we've just said, you know, working outside the firm was essential in the early days. I mean, it was seen, of course, one of the things you did is you helped run the family businesses. He wanted lawyers who were dedicated to practicing law, and he wanted the best lawyers he could find. And he thought many of them were located out in the countryside, not in Toronto. So he brought in Riddle, who was in Coburg, and he brought in R.S. Robertson from Stratford and so on. People who were just excellent lawyers and were willing to dedicate themselves to the practice of law. He even hired a young Jewish lawyer, Lionel Davis. I understand that wasn't very common at that time. No, indeed. It was the first of the Bay Street firms to hire a Jewish lawyer. I think it was through the influence of Sigmund Samuel, who was a business associate of Faskin. Which brings me to another point that's worth making. David did not apply these rules to himself. David was very much like William Henry Beattie and the other lawyers of the days. He was as much a businessman 
as a lawyer. He became president of Excelsior Life through the financial funding of George Goodrum. So he was president of an insurance company, but he also became heavily involved in Northern Ontario mining, working with some of the people invested in Inco. And then when the cobalt silver strike came in 1908, I think it was, you know, he got heavily involved in that. And he, in fact, became a millionaire through his business dealings outside the firm at a time when a million dollars was a lot of money. But the people working for him in the firm, he wanted to, in fact, be focused on law. So what has been the trajectory of Faskins since the early 20th century? Does it look like the history of other Bay Street firms, or are there important differences? Well, I think there are some important differences. The interesting thing is that the Faskin firm had a relatively narrow clientele in the early days because it represented basically the Gooder and Wartz family businesses. Now, when David Faskin took over, many of those businesses stayed with the firm, but the family connection obviously was gone. And in fact, the family members, the Gooderman Blackstocks, and so on, they, they left the firm and founded another firm. But it had, a, as I say, a relatively small base. David Faskin then expanded that base, but again, primarily clients that he was personally involved with. So Dome Mines, a gold mining company, Nipissing Mining, which was silver mining company, and Cobalt, and so on, Excelsior Life, Toronto Western Hospital. He was one of the founders of the Toronto Western Hospital. So it, it had, a, I think, a narrower base than some of the other establishment Bay Street firms. And it went through a period, it was the largest firm in Canada in 1901, had 15 lawyers, second largest in North America, only, uh, I think it was Sullivan and Cromwell, had 16. But after David Faskin took over the firm, a number of the lawyers left, and it stayed, you know, at a firm around 10 to 20 lawyers through the Depression, Second World War, and so on. Like all of the other Bay Street firms, it grew exponentially in the 1950s after the Second World War. And if you were to chart, you know, the growth, it's, it's a relatively small line going from two lawyers up to 15, you know, over the first 40 years or so. And then leveling off, minor growth, and then just shooting up. So you go from after the Second World War, it would have had 18 lawyers, and today it has 800. Now, they're not all in Canada. They're not all certainly in Toronto because of mergers, and it's become a national firm. It's becoming an international firm. These are certainly trends that you see with the other firms as well. Now, tell us what you've been doing, Ian, over the last few years since you retired from Faskins. Well, my wife says to me that I don't know how to retire. So in fact, I've been very, very busy. I've continued to practice on a part-time basis with a long-standing client, RPM Technologies. They provide very, very good expert system software for financial institutions in Canada. But a lot of my focus has been back on history where I wanted it to be in the first place. So in addition to finishing the firm history and doing historical novel on Mozart and Salieri, called Damaging Winds. I have written a what I call a prehistory of the Toronto Transit Commission called A 30 Years' War. It's about the legal battles between the city of Toronto and its private sector transit provider that went from 1891 to 1921. That grew out of work that I was doing. I did the legal work for Metrolinx and introducing the Presto card to the TTC, and so I got interested in transit history in Toronto. I've also done a history of the Canada Depository Insurance Corporation that just came out a short time ago called Next Best to World Class, which effectively is a history of financial regulation in Canada. Because when I was asked, CDIC was a longstanding client of mine, and uh, 
so that when they saw the Faskin history, they asked if I could do their history for their 50th anniversary. And as you know, writing current history is quite difficult. So I said to them, would you mind if I started a little earlier? And they said, when? And I said, well, I'd like to start in 1867. <laughs> and so the first chapter is called 100 Years Without CDIC. Right. Because what I wanted to provide the background for why we have deposit insurance and why it takes the shreep it does. And to do that, you really have to understand what it was like before we had. So I've done that. And then, to my great surprise, my novel on Mozart and Salieri has caught on a bit, and I was asked to do an operetta for the San Francisco Opera Center about the relationship between Mozart and Salieri, which was staged last year, called Setting the Record Straight, Mozart and Salieri Redux, which I did with a good friend, Bruce Salvatore. I didn't write the music. Mozart and Salieri provided the music, but I provided the story. So I've been very busy. Well, Ian, thanks so much for sharing your insights on this really important dimension of Canadian business history. My guest today was Ian Kyer on his book, Lawyers, Families, and Businesses, The Shaping of a Bay Street Law Firm, Faskins, 1863 to 1963, published by Irwin Law in conjunction with the Osgood Society for Canadian Legal History, 2013. This interview was recorded at the Alan Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was produced by Hugh Backhurst. Thank you all. <laughs>